Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whited and my guest today is Lisa Layton, Joint Managing Partner of BHP Accountants. You can find her on Twitter at BHP Accountants. Lisa, welcome. Hi. How did your day start? Stressful. I have two kids, a 14-year-old girl and this morning it was not great when she announced that she'd forgotten to print something off for her homework that needed to be in today. So there was a lot of hot air. I also have two dogs who rely on me and Amy taking them out at 7.15. That went a little bit pear-shaped because of the stress of printing off some GCSE English, but we got through it and it was fine. And my 10-year-old son... Uh, came to the rescue to walk the dog, so always good. Dependent dogs then. Uh, so tell tell me about BHP. Uh, so BHP, are, we're a firm of accountants. Um, we are based in Yorkshire. Uh, we have five offices and uh, we have tripled in size in the last 10 years, both via acquisition and also organically. Uh, we have just over 350 staff in five locations and we do everything that uh, you'd expect of a firm of accountants. We have an enviable client base, I'd call it, primarily out for SMEs of growing businesses, but also have specialists in healthcare, charities, not-for-profit and academies. So, yeah, we're, we're Yorkshire. Your website describes BHP as reassuringly straight-laced. Are you? Uh, the company, that is, not you personally, but you can answer that in person if, as well, if you like. I was going to giggle at that point because what we did was uh, we gave the brief, a brief to our advertising agency um, and it, the brief was to be disruptive because we are accountants after all. People think whenever you say you're accountants that it's boring and we wanted to try and change that. What I can say is that this had probably the most debate ever that I've seen at a partners meeting. There's 31 of us and generally at least half will be quite quiet. It wasn't at this one. So the agency stood up, talked through reassuringly straight-laced, and as you can imagine, 31 people, we've all got very different strengths, weaknesses, different personalities, and it was really, I would say, one of the first times I'd noticed how diverse we are. So it was around, well, reassuringly straight-laced. Is it spelt correctly? Does it make us sound boring? Actually, that's what we wanted to achieve. We wanted people to talk. We wanted people to understand that, well, not understand, wanted people really to just notice. And I think that's what we've achieved because you will have hopefully seen the follow-up that came out of that in terms of straight-laced. There's very different ways of tying your shoelaces. And each partner group tie their shoelaces in a very different way, which demonstrates a great team. And that's what we were trying to get across. So in terms of reassuringly straight yet laced, I would say, yes, we are. We are We are tax advisors. We are auditors. So we have to be straight laced. But we just wanted to show a little bit more personality. A little bit of tongue in cheek. I yes, think. it was. It was. But as I said, it created a lot of debate internally. Now, when uh, Don Gray, the head of your corporate finance team, nominated you, uh, so you can blame him, he said yeah. that you had an interesting backstory. Would you like to tell me more? Yes. So 
everybody that's listening will know that I'm from my accent that I'm not a Yorkshire girl, a Yorkshire lass. I am uh, a Brummie, so I originally come from Walsall. Uh, I'm an only child, and I came to uni in Sheffield. And I would say, as a child and growing up, I was quite quiet, very timid person. Even at family parties, I'd sit on my nan's knee. I wouldn't go anywhere near any sort of family members. And it took a lot to actually get to uni. When I was about, how old would I have been? About 11, 12. I went to the just a normal state school. And I took an entrance exam for a, a grammar school. And I passed. But I, w- I refused to go. It was an all-girls school. And I just wanted to stay with my own friends. And then it came to uni. Again, I didn't want to come. And my dad said, right, you've had your decision. You had your way uh, from senior school. You're not having your way this time. You are going. So I came. I came to Sheffield. This bit is not is not very nice because my dad died when I was at uni. So it's quite quite a hard thing to do. Not hard because it's years ago. But equally, it's really shaped a lot of how I live my life and how I've come to I think where I am now. I was in my second year at uni. I was a person, well, a family that, you know, we're very stuck in our ways of routine. I'd ring them Sunday, Tuesday and Thursday. And one Sunday, I rung my mum. Sorry, I rung as planned. And my mum said, oh, your dad's... I said, can I speak to dad? No, he's not here. He's gone to see your nan. But what I didn't know was actually the paramedics were trying to revive my dad at the time. What then happened was I rung back later because I just knew something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And, my, and my auntie picked the phone up and said, oh, your dad's got your... your uh. I said, oh, what are you doing there? She says, oh, I've come for a drink with your mum and dad. And actually, she hadn't. It's because my mum was at the hospital. And then she came on and said, I'm really sorry, but your dad's died. Wow. So it was, it was a sh- it, well, massive shock. He was 46. He had a heart attack. Not expected. But actually, that's really shaped my life. Mm-hmm. Because, I, as I said earlier, I was so timid. I was a very timid person. But that made, really, really made me have to grow up. Because it was just me. Yeah. I just had to look after my mum. Yeah. So I looked after... <coughs> I basically had to learn how to arrange a funeral. I had to deal with his estate, which, you know, wasn't massive. Because, you know, it, all, it, we're a working class family at the end of the day. Yeah. But then my mum, so I was going to go back to Walsall. And she said, no, because I used to walk past BHP and think, oh, I'd love to work there. And I did. I got the job. And I said to her, look, I'll come back. She said, no, you stay. And that's really what's really driven me to do things for people. Because I was almost searching for a, a new family. And BHP, I believe, is my family. And it really drives home now you know you've got one life you need to live it Mm. there's no point not doing things for nervousness or thinking that you can't just try because my mum lost her long life partner and uh, she will regret things that she didn't do so yeah people come to see me and say they've made mistakes said is anybody dead no well that's all right move on because I will never ever feel as bad as that day Um, so that's really what's driven me to where I am today. 
you're an executive in residence at uh, Sheffield Hallam University, aren't you? Is, yes. is that because of your belief in, in yourself and in, in your ability to transcend your background, if you like? I think it's uh, one of the th- reasons I did that when I was asked to do it was I always say that Sheffield has given me so much and I want to give something back to mm-hmm. Sheffield. So uh, the opportunity for executive in residence at Hallam University came along and that, again, is inputting in how what employers need for the future in terms of um, skills, the graduates that are coming out of Hallam University, which I believe will be very different, from certainly from an auditor or an accountant's perspective. Mm. Certainly within the next five years, or probably over the next two, three, because our, our profession is changing significantly. So that's inputting in to try and give something back and drive what, what we need as an employer. Equally, another thing that I did five years ago, maybe longer than that, um, I got asked to be treasurer of Cavendish Cancer Care. And again, the reason I did that is because I wanted to give something back to Sheffield. I've got a great, I've got a husband from Sheffield. I've got a great job. I've got two great kids. So why wouldn't I want to give something back? It was sold to me on the basis of, oh, it won't take long. It won't take much of your time up. And uh, I remember the very first two months, I think it was just before Christmas Eve, I was in there till about 9pm trying to resolve something. Uh, But again, I love it. I love accounting. And again, it was that sense of achievement that helping that that charity. Yeah. Now, that's an interesting comment, you love accounting, because it strikes me like the law... It's one of those solid middle-class professions that parents encourage their children to take up and then those same, same kids often find that it's not quite what they expected. Yeah. Do you know, I, I don't understand why people do think accounting is boring. I, I say to our team, if you think it's boring, you're not doing it correctly because I feel I am in a very privileged position because I can be really nosy in lots of businesses So we're in a privileged position to ask questions and be nosy without being asked, why are you asking me that question? I understand that. That's like podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so what I love about my, my role is spending time with business owners, asking them questions. And I'm sometimes not asking them for helping them with a solution. Sometimes I'm asking them for my own nosiness to see if I can implement something in our business because I think that's one of the great things about being in the role that I am. It's actually not about accounting. That's the nuts and bolts. You know, if you're employing an accountant, you expect a certain level of numbers. It's not about the numbers. It's very much sitting with clients and sitting with the staff and sitting with the teams and trying to arrive at solutions. My two kids always say to me, oh, I don't want to be an accountant. You spend too many hours at work. But actually, my son has got glimmers of asking questions because in the morning when we go to school, we, we ask, a bit like what you said to me earlier, how did you start your day? So the question of the day on the way into school is always, what, what are we doing for the day? And my kids interview me to ask me what sort of clients I'm seeing each day and what what businesses I'm visiting in terms of trying to, I, I don't tell them the names, but I tell them what types of things we're doing. So my son has started to have a glimmer of, oh, this sounds very interesting. That's great. 
my kids never had that curiosity when I was uh, in business, but nowadays they always ask me who I'm in, uh, interviewing next for this podcast. Do they? <laughs> and, and my middle daughter, by the way, is a forensic accountant. Oh, is she? So, uh, oh, they're really nosy. <laughs> forensic accountants are even nosier than normal accountants. Now, you're the only Sheffield company to feature in the Sunday Times Best 100 Companies to Work For, middle-sized company. What is it that makes BHP a great place to work? I would say lots of things. And uh, it took us a long time to get that award and get into that list. In 2010, I think it was, we, um, it was the first time that we looked at what our strategy and vision was as, as a practice. And one of the things that we included in that, what we wanted to achieve, was, was aimed to be one of the top 100 employers. We didn't think we'd get into it, and we didn't for quite a long time, but we wanted to strive towards being able to do that. So I'd, I think it's lots of things that we've done over 10 years to get to the point that we felt comfortable and we're putting ourselves forward. So I would say the most recent ones are really, really simple, straightforward things, but mean a lot to people. So mental health and well-being is, is massive, uh, we're on a treadmill, we're all on a treadmill and we as an employer want to make sure that we are treating our employees in a fair way uh, and making sure that we're live to that and giving support to people. So we introduced an email curfew, so between the hours of 7pm and 7am we don't send emails. Uh, there are instances where that happens but we feel it's really important that people switch off we introduced a volunteering day from a CSR perspective so that people can have an additional day where they can go and volunteer for a charity. We introduced fruit. It's amazing how fruit goes down, albeit people, they're, they're, everybody's like a locust on a Monday. It's, it's great. So our uh, receptionist sends an email that says fruit is here by about quarter past ten. There's an old plum left and not a lot else. We had a wellbeing week recently where we had Katie Bell physiotherapy team come oh, into yeah. the office, set up camp, and we had um, somebody come in to do some mindfulness sessions. And it's all around some of those little things. It sounds little, but actually means mm. quite a bit to people. And we've most recently, uh, again, teamed up with Katie Bell. So once a month, her physio team to come into the office so you can book your session you don't have the stress of trying to try and find a time and travel somewhere to go and get your session done so that's also been good I think one of the other big things is mentioned earlier about me searching for a family it sounds ridiculous but everybody looks out for each other it is a family which obviously sometimes is good sometimes is bad but it is very much a family atmosphere so that culture is really important to us mm. And one of the things we did recently as a partner group was, have you, um, the book, Why, Simon Sinek? Oh, I've seen the podcast. Um, um, very, YouTube. Yes. And we did a workshop as a partner group where we all looked at our own personal why and come up with, arrived at what was the why of BHP. I bought it here so I get the right words. So it was really interesting because we did it in four different groups, but all the groups came up with really similar things. 
which is good because we're all on the same page. So our why is to support, develop and inspire our people and our clients so that they are able to realise their true potential. And that's really important from for the team's perspective because we will help, support, train. So if somebody comes into your office and says, I really want to do that, we will find a way in which we can help them do that. Investing in technology. We don't like to be the leader because it can go wrong. <laughs> we like somebody to test it first. But equally, we are, if you look at our offices from the front in terms of the it looks like a very old traditional building. If you open up the doors, go inside, we're very techy. Uh, we've invested heavily in tech. And one of the things that we need to make sure that we continue to do is invest in tech. Mm. Because a lot of the services that we provide, I firmly will believe, will have disappeared in the next five years. So it's it's retraining people into making sure that it's there for the next generation. I was going to ask you, in fact, what are your priorities right now? So technology is up there with your priorities, is it? It's probably number one. Yeah. Um, alongside people skills and continue to develop people. So in terms of priorities, um, we recently won a National Audit Team of the Year, which I was very proud of because our auditors are, you know, it's the backbone of the firm mm. and it's really hard to demonstrate how you're different from an audit perspective. But we've invested heavily in the last two years for using data analytics in our audit processes. And there's not many firms of our size that have done that. So I led a project along with one, one of my directors and one of our senior team members to introduce it into our techniques. And that's one of the reasons we won the award, because it was around making sure that we're innovating because people, you know, people, I think, look at a professional services firm and probably think, well, how can you innovate? Because you haven't got machines. But actually, there's always some way of innovating and, and changing and challenging what we do. So innovation is, is, is key to moving that forward. So in terms of priorities, is making sure that, you know, it, there's, a, is the cl- there's a cliche and everybody's been using it for the last 10, 15 years. It's moving the practice from compliance to advisory. So we're on that trip, we're on that journey, and that's got to be the priority. And making sure that our, I call them the kids, the <laughs> the kids because they're so much younger than me, making sure that the kids can be turned into rounded advisors, which actually is really difficult to do because the way that I learned in terms of the nuts and bolts really different now because a lot of the things I did to make me what I am today you don't do some of those bits and roles anymore yeah uh so it's a real it's a massive change for the profession but we want to be part of moving that forward that's interesting I I, um, started my career as a design engineer and um, there are parallels there because a lot of the kind of number crunching and calculator and drawing board work that you used to do now being replaced by a computer and I question whether it makes you quite as rounded as an engineer well I, I would I would agree uh, we have lots of debate around this in the office as you can imagine certainly at the partner group level and a lot of that work will disappear but actually you should flip it around the other way and see as an opportunity because actually what it does mean is that we as partners and some of the senior team should be taking those 
kids and trainees along with us to meetings because they're only the only way they are going to learn is to listen to what clients need and what clients want and what they're asking for and the only way you can teach that is being in those meetings and listening and listening to those conversations while we're um, on audit by the way can i ask you what you might consider an ethics related question which is we've seen some big corporate bankruptcies lately like uh, thomas cook's latest one Carillion before that, what were the auditors of those companies doing? It's an interesting question. <laughs> I don't know the answer because I've not seen their files. But, uh, you know, if, if, there's a lot out there in the press. The profession is coming under huge scrutiny from the point of your audit quality. So it comes down to quality and the training. If you don't get the training right once the trainees come in, it's very difficult when you move when people are moving through and progressing if you haven't got the basics right and I'm not saying they haven't got the basics right but what I would say is it would be interesting to see where that quality lacked because I think coming back to what I said earlier people see audit as the boring bit as a necessary evil actually it shouldn't be mm. it shouldn't be that oh I want it for £2.50 so get no value out of it particularly when public interests involved such as shareholders pension funds there's a real requirement for the audit team to be challenging challenging those directors so so I don't know enough detail about it but yeah quality is really under pressure and that's one of the reasons why we also I'm also very keen to have got data analytics into our audit techniques because that really allows you to mine far more uh, data quickly than somebody sitting there trawling through and, and hoping to find yeah. transactions that look risky. So it's all around training, development, um, and it comes back to when you first start. Your joint managing partner with Hamish Morrison, what was the thinking behind that and is it working? It's a very interesting question, Chris. One of the things we advise clients is never have a joint MD and then we go ahead and do it. But it is working. Uh, We are now eight months in. And whenever I used to go and see, well, when I used to go and see clients and they'd say, oh, being an MD is a really lonely place, I thought they were a bit mad. But actually they're right. And if I hadn't got Hamish to chew the fat with Every night, I think I'd find it even more difficult than how I found it. Uh, I think I underestimated what it would involve. And I honestly don't know how John Warner used to have his client base that he's got and run this practice. And I keep telling him, I think he's a superhero. I think he's Spider-Man or something. But it's working well. And one of the reasons we did it was our business, I think I said earlier, has tripled in size in the last 10 years so it was very different to when John started his managing partner tenure and we felt the role was too big just for one person so we took the role on jointly because we both of us are very different we've got very different skill sets so that complements each other and also there's something called the M1 and M62 so rather than me or Hamish running around the whole of Yorkshire and not being very effective. We almost have got a position where I look after the south, he looks after the north, but we need to be really careful that we don't get a divide, particularly 
from how we run the practice. We make sure that we do things jointly as much as we can. But from business development perspective, it makes no sense to do that jointly because we're very different markets. The north is quite different to the south. So that, that's one of the reasons why we split it jointly. The other thing is, is that both of us wanted to retain our client relationships. So I've still got the same clients that I had previously uh, and I was really keen to make sure that happened. I didn't want clients to think that just because I've become managing partner that I was ditching them because some of them I've had, you know, I've had connections with since I started back in 1995 and I've grown with those businesses. I've added value to those businesses and I didn't really want to give that up. I think Hamish gets sick of the six o'clock <laughs> phone call every night. It doesn't. It's not every single night that we do it, but we tend to make sure that we we speak often, particularly when we've had things that need to be dealt with. So yeah, it's working well. I think the teams like it as well. Might be different if you've asked them that question, but I would say what they all they call us the double act. The other good thing is that he's not that much taller than I am. <laughs> so we look, we look like. Uh, Ant and Deck, I think. I'll always be on the left and Hamish will always be on the right. You find yourself a new nickname there when you get back to the office. As I mentioned, I've worked in a professional services firm and one thing that I noticed is that people tend to be promoted on the basis of their technical skills to leadership roles that demand people skills and that it often doesn't end well. Do you encounter that at BHP? No, no, I hope not. I hope that people think I've got the people skills and one of the reasons I believe that I'm in the position that I am is if I roll back to the crash, so that was what, 2007-8, my career path was very different I think to, to what's, well certainly to what other people have done at BHP. So I, I trained as an auditor, I got bored after three years despite me telling everybody that audit is not boring and decided I wanted something slightly different. So I approached the existing partners at that time and I moved slightly sideways into, I call it corporate finance, but it wasn't. It was really small-scale advisory work for our existing client base. So I got involved in that and then I left and had a baby and I came back and we merged with a, a corporate finance practice, Ingram Forest, and I did some real corporate finance for about five, six years, always with a plan to coming back out into the, I call it the other side, it's not the other side, into general practice because we had, we had three partners retiring. What that allowed me to do is I hadn't got a massive client portfolio when I came back. So I picked up the role of staff partner because back in those days, you didn't really have heads of support team. One of the partners headed up a support function. So I wasn't at the meeting when I got nominated to be staff partner. But because I'd got time, it allowed me to get heavily involved in staff issues and taught me so much about the practice and taught me so much about dealing with people, dealing with challenging issues, equally dealing with mentoring, coaching, supporting people through. So I honestly believe that that time allowed me to hone those skills. 
And I would say that's one of my biggest strengths is around coaching people, sitting down with somebody. They come potentially sometimes in a bit of a flap. They might feel they've done something wrong. But by the time they leave the office, I think they, hopefully, they would say that I've helped them come to find a solution. But you're quite right. Very often people are promoted because of techie skills and time. I would say um, the future accountant is not techie. It's, it's an advisor. It's being able to sit with a client and listen. Listening massive. It really is. Well, that's reassuring. I'm a big fan of uh, Nancy Klein, so I'm also a big believer in listening. What do you consider your greatest work-related achievement to date? I would say two things, if I'm allowed to. One is being in the very privileged position to be joint managing partner. I think I put something on LinkedIn over the weekend. Uh, There's a photograph of me stood with uh, three homegrown partners. And if you'd have told me in 1995 that in 2019 I'd be standing leading the practice, I'd have said that you were mad. I almost feel like I've fallen into it. I know I haven't. But it does make me so proud of the fact that, you know, people say, uh, well, I said earlier about education, I come from a really poor background, really poor area, but a very supportive family. And actually, I'll say now, I would not be where I am without the support of my mum. So she lives in Walsall still, but every week since my daughter was born, she spends Thursday and Friday here. So she's sort of my childcare also. Um, but I won't be where I am without her. Um, so my biggest achievement today is being able to lead this practice into the next generation. And what I want to do is make sure it's there for the... I keep calling them the kids. Make sure it's there for the next generation. Because as I said earlier, Sheffield and BHP have given me so much. She's making sure that you pay that back and yeah. pass it on. Yeah, Tony, Stacey, my last interview was also talking about uh, that inheritance aspect to the MD's role. What's the failure or mistake you've learnt most from? Uh, crashing and burning. In, in what way? Crashing and burning. So, as I said earlier, life is so busy. Social media, uh, email has got so much to, to answer for. And if I roll back... I would say five years as at a partners meeting. So very busy time for me. There was no let up. I'd go home every night. I would not have a break. I'd open my laptop up again. And I I was on this treadmill. I was on this constant treadmill. And because I'm quite a strong person, I never thought that I'd be the sort of person that could fall over. So it's almost, you you know, you're you're your own worst enemy. Mm. I was at a partner's meeting and uh, we went round the table and it was a strategy day and it was around talking through what your personal objectives were. And there was three people in that room. I remember it like it was yesterday. One person had just joined us and he said, I wasn't around. I've got two sons and I wasn't around enough for my older son. But joining this practice means I can be for my second son. There was one person whose brother-in-law had just died at quite a young age and was talking about how time is precious. And then there was a third person 
that says it's around working hard when I have to, but also being able to be there for those really important times for my daughter. And it really hit me that actually I was running round like a ridiculous blue-arse fly and I, I hadn't got time for my kids. And it really, really made me wake up. I was really upset that night. But my, but John Warner and David Forrest sat me down. We talked through things in terms of time management, what I could drop, what I could say no to. And I started running as well. Not like marathons. I was talking couch to 5K here. So, uh, started running. So... You started looking after yourself yes. physically as well started as psychologically. Looking, started looking after myself and started to say, no, I've got some post-it notes here that I've brought with me. And this was one of the most horrendous things that I've ever done, but was really helpful. So we did a coaching and mentoring session and there was five, pe- six people in the room and you had to, it's called post-it note feedback. I don't know if you've ever done it before. Quite therapeutic, but also quite scary. And you had to write down some key points for the five people. You had to sit in front of them and say one thing that was positive and one thing that they needed to change. And I've kept these because if I look at these, it makes me realise why I was running around like a blue-arse fly. Right. And it's, it says, work life is always at 100 miles per hour. Take time to see the wood for the trees. Puts other people's work needs before your own, but what is the impact? Really positive, believes in helping team, takes on too much, question mark, can mother. And that's exactly why I was in the situation that I was, because I wasn't being, uh, one, not looking after myself, as you just said, Mm. but not being selfish, with not selfish, but not, really looking at my time I was take, making sure that other people were okay rather than me self-care yeah and very often uh what I see in other people coming through the practice is very similar because you're just on this treadmill and you just want to do the best for your client and your team and you forget that if you don't look after yourself you can't do that and do you offer them the advice that yes. you were offered yourself yes and I ditched various things that I was doing that were great to do, but actually weren't helping. I colour-coded my diary because I was, I was certain that I was doing things in my diary, in, in my daily life, that I didn't need to do. So I colour-coded it so that I could see how long I was spending with clients, how long I was spending with the team, how long I was spending on business development, And that really now makes you focus on a weekly basis. Is there anything in there that I really shouldn't be doing? So I've been quite selfish. My PA is excellent. I wasn't using her properly. I saw her as somebody that could do a few bits here and there. I couldn't do without her now. I see her at certain times, certain days. She does loads for me. She manages that diary and she, she also helps in terms of saying no. She also sends appointments to my husband, but that is another story. <laughs> and is there a particular experience or person that's inspired you along the way? Lots of people. I've already mentioned my mum, so she could have that. Uh, she can have that, and, and she's inspired me because of her resilience when my dad died. She could have just given up, but she didn't, 
um, and she did various things in her life to, to make life better. So I take a lot from her. Stephen Ingram. So Stephen Ingram was one of the partners of Ingram Forest. I spent a lot of time with Stephen and learned loads from him of running meetings, simple things around how when I should send emails, how I should do them, how I should word them. John Warner. So I've worked with John now since I joined the firm in 95. Is in the room next to me. Again, I think he gets sick of me in and out. But it's it's great to have somebody where I can go run and run something by him, run a conversation by him, run something by him that I think, would you do it this way? Would you do it that way? Um, so I've learned loads from him. And I continue to learn from people that are lower down in the firm. Mm. Um, those who've got enthusiasm for technology, I think they get really annoyed with me when I start, rather than rotating on a screen, I pick my screen up and turn it around, Lisa, you don't need to do that, you can do it this way, oh, okay. We've got a girl who we've just moved, called uh, Ellie Dignam, she's just moved out of a client-facing role to help drive technology, and I'm learning loads from her. Um, so yeah, I, I think the philosophy I have is every day, is a learning day. I never think that I've I've got to my peak. But yeah, all of the above, plus loads of clients. But I can't mention because they'll know I've nicked their ad- ideas. <laughs> so I normally ask if you could go back uh, 25 years in your career, what advice would you give yourself? But I could ask, what advice would you give my middle daughter starting out in a forensic accountancy career? I would tell her to believe in herself and believe that she can keep going to the next level because I I still say, I know I keep saying it, I feel like I've fallen into where I am. I, I never I never really had a career plan. I've just done what I can to get to the next level each time and I've not thought, right, I need to get there with a massive leap. I've taken it in bite-sized chunks and just layered it on. The other thing I would say, and th- this isn't, I don't want it to sound derogatory, but we still do live, particularly in our profession, we still live in a man's world. Mm. One of the things we want to change and is certainly part of our uh, vision and strategy as a firm in terms of diversity is change the percentages of um, females that come through to senior management. But it is still a man's world. You go into meetings and sometimes, I mean, I'm the only female, which actually is quite hard if you think too much about it. Just go in and ignore the fact that you're different sexes. I just take a person as a person. Uh, whereas some people, I think, might think, oh, I'm not sure about going into that room. You've almost, you know, I've been in various situations where I feel you walk into a room and you feel you've got to prove yourself. Mm. You shouldn't have to do that. But yeah, believe in yourself, I would say. And stick to what you want, you know, stick to your plan of what you want to do. You know, you, it's in your locker to do it yourself. So Lisa, thanks ever so much for coming in today. I'm so glad that I managed to get past your formidable PA and into your colour-coded diary. <laughs> you did, you were yellow, you were yellow. What's <laughs> that? Yes. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Compassionate Leadership Interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, at www.compassionate-leadership.co.uk or on Amazon. 
If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. This show was recorded at Rebel Base Media in Sheffield, and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records.